Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is David Law. David is a broadcaster and co-founder of the biggest podcast in tennis, absolutely named The Tennis Podcast. Normally, I'd run you through David's resume and some background on his podcast. But all that good stuff, and trust me, there's plenty of it, comes through in the conversation. Instead, I really want to highlight up front that this is an exceptional conversation on what it takes to be successful as a podcaster. David and his co-presenters have recorded over 1,000 episodes. They went five years without earning a penny from the podcast. It took over 10 years to become a full-time gig, but they stuck with it. And now they've got the biggest podcast in their field, a large and growing subscriber base, and they count a host of famous names as listeners, including Billie Jean King and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Growth, monetization, persistence, broadcasting, you name it, this has it all. And I hope you enjoy the next hour as much as I did. David, I'm very excited to have you with us today. Call me biased, but I think you have two of the toughest jobs I know, podcasting and commenting on live tennis for the radio. I want to go into both of those things in our discussion and mostly focusing on the tennis podcast, which you've built into the biggest in tennis. So I thought the best place to begin is kind of going back through time into the history of starting this endeavor, what you're doing at the time. You've been going for over 10 years, which is kind of unusual for many podcasts. And having done this for less than a year, I know what a grind that is. So take us back to those early moments and then the big, I guess, inflection points or chapter marks in your history in the tennis podcast that brings us to today. You're right. It's 11 years and counting since we began this. And when I think back to when we started it, it seems like not a sensible time to have started this because in my working life, things were great. I was the media director of the Queen's Club Tennis Tournament in London. I'd been doing that for well over 10 years. I I actually finished it last year, having done my 25th edition of it. I was also running the public relations side of the ATP Champions Tour, which was retired players like John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors and Bjorn Borg and players like that. And I'd been doing that for a long time. I was also commentating for BBC Radio, had been doing that for the best part of 10 years. And I was just about to start commentating for BT Sport in the UK, who just got the UK rights to the WTA, the Women's Tennis Tour. So I'd got plenty on my plate. And Yeah, sounded like you need a side hustle. Yeah. So I thought, (laughs) what else can I add? But I mean, the truth is, I had always loved podcasts. I'd actually had a go at running a podcast for the Queen's Tournament five years previously. So in 2007, this is a, a point at which iPhones were not heard of really yet, I don't think. Certainly, they weren't capable of 
downloading podcasts onto them for people to listen to. So people were downloading them onto their laptops and hooking them up to their iPods. And that's the only way you could make them work. So we did a 10-part series for this Queen's tournament with lots of interviews and game show host style presenting from me, which I would absolutely cringe at if I listened to today. But I'd always loved podcasts and I'd always wanted to have one, frankly. I used to love listening to the Ricky Gervais show as the first ever podcast I listened to and fell in love with the medium. And I had somebody working for me at the time who'd been working for me about five years in 2012 called Catherine Whitaker. And she'd come to me as a student wanting to work in tennis. And she basically kind of became my number two in everything. She would do my traveling for the Champions Tour when I could no longer do it. She would just basically run around after me and make all the phone calls and just be brilliant at her job doing that. And as we got to know one another, we realized that we both loved podcasts. We both worked in tennis. She loved tennis. And I just remember saying to her one day, what about if we had our own tennis podcast? And we called it the Tennis Podcast because there aren't any. And she, quick as a flash, said, I'm in. And then it was a question of, right, now what do we do? And the truth is, in my personal life, we got a two-year-old and a six-month-old. We were about to move house. We were in the middle of the period of Wimbledon and Queens, the busiest time of the year. And lo and behold, in May 2012, we launched the Tennis Podcast. We recorded the first edition in my parents' dining room. I think we had five people listening, two of which were next door, <laughs> my parents, and then who the others were, I don't know. I'm pretty sure they were Catherine's parents. But we we started. And initially, we started with an interview in every single show because I was convinced that nobody would want to listen to just Catherine and me having a conversation. She was convinced otherwise because of podcasts that she listened to. So we kind of did both. We did half an hour of having a chat about the French Open, making predictions for the next week, all of which were wrong. And that became a theme for the next 11 years. <laughs> and then we had an interview with Carlos Moya, who Catherine had managed to meet on the Champions Tour. And we'd started banking interviews as we'd gone along the two months prior. And that was how it came about. And here we are 11 years and 1,145 episodes later. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a number. I think we're up to 300 on our longest ones. Do you remember when you started, whether you had like a weekly cadence or how long did it take you to formulate kind of the plan or the strategy for what now is the tennis podcast or is it still an evolving beast? Oh, it's very much still evolving. But I would say when you've done it for as long as we did and have done, you make all your mistakes early. I mean, I think the key is to make your mistakes when not many people are listening and not many people are listening. I can guarantee you that. But I think immediately we realized that one of the things we could do was to look back on the week of tennis just gone and to look ahead to the week coming up. But I still don't think we were. We were doing them weekly for a while, but then we would get too busy with other things and we'd maybe miss one or two. And And it was only maybe a couple of years later when I really realized the importance of regularity and, and reliability, frankly, for the listeners to know that we're going to be there for them. So we eventually decided we're going to do it every single week on a Monday. And that way we could review the week just gone, preview the week coming up. I think we got through about six months worth of shows in which we had an interview in every single one. And there were some good names. There were Grand Slam champions, John McEnroe, there were Bjorn Borg, all sorts of people. 
we just ran out. We ran out of people we knew that we could really go to and and add an interview to the show and quickly realized, and as the years have gone on, two things. One is that we can rely on ourselves. We can't necessarily rely on interviewees to fill the time. And secondly, actually, when we looked at the numbers, didn't seem to matter who we had on as a guest, people were coming to listen to us, having a conversation as if we were in the pub. That was a real eye-opener for me. Catherine was right. <laughs> I hate to admit that, but she was. And so, yeah, we do do occasional interviews, but they are we're not sort of making ourselves have to do them every week. And I think that that is key to what we've managed to create. It sounds like it started out as a, a passion project, but was there a mission statement or a real purpose behind what you were doing? Did you have grand visions of what it could become and Maybe if it wasn't in the beginning, at some point, did you layer that in as it's become this big established property? I think because it was very much done on the side. I mean, it absolutely was a labor of love and it's still a labor of love. Just imagine if we could make this into our jobs. I did used to think that and that seemed a heck of a long time off. And let's be honest, it has been a long time off. It took nine years to get to that point. And I had a lot of other jobs. Catherine was working for me. And so we were very busy. We didn't have a mission statement, but in my mind, and having worked in tennis and the business and on the public relations and marketing side for a long time, I always sort of thought, well, if we call it the tennis podcast, that would be a good way for a company to attach a name to it one day if they paid us enough and call it the whatever company tennis podcast. 11 years on, that has never happened. (laughs) And so I failed spectacularly with my first (laughs) business idea. Frankly, we've managed to make other ways to monetize it. But initially, that was my thinking is one day that might happen. But I always knew that unless people are listening, unless we grow this from the people next door and the few other family members that are kindly listening to this, then nobody's going to be interested in attaching a name to it in any way. So it was all about building an audience. But the only way you can keep going is by enjoying it. And Catherine and I just got along on air. I mean, we argue like cat and dogs sometimes, but in some ways, that is part of the appeal. You don't quite know when we're going to fall out. Yeah, that brand partnership hasn't happened yet, or that title change hasn't happened yet. It's still possible. It could happen in the future, too. I'm curious about the broadcasting experience and how much of that you were able to take into the podcasting experience. Was there anything that was just a natural transition? Was there anything that was very surprising in terms of the mediums being different? It's audio, but what are the differences and similarities between the two? Well, the thing is, I come from an audio background because I've been a tennis commentator for 20 years on BBC Radio 5 Live. So I thought I knew all there was to know about audio. And I approached the podcast very much as if it was a BBC Radio 5 Live show. I remember our first edition, we'd chosen our music and I came off the back of it with an intro and I tried, and it was sounding like a radio show, really, if I listen back to it now. It's a bit cringe, really, to hear the scripted nature of my intro. We don't do that at all anymore because we started to realize, actually, this is not radio. It has some things in common, It's but it's not professional BBC broadcasting as I've come into being used to. It's more, in our situation, conversational and we don't know what's coming next. It's not all laid out in quite the same way. And actually, I think if anything, I feel the podcasting of 11 years worth has 
made me into a different and I think better broadcaster because it's loosened me up. I'm not so tired. I'm not thinking about taking everything quite so seriously on, on air when I'm commentating about tennis now. I see the funny side of it. And if I do see the funny side of it, I'm not afraid to talk about it. So really, it was a, it's much more of a pub conversation than anything else that we'd done. But I would say, generally, my comfort behind the microphone was something that didn't therefore put me off doing it. The interesting thing was watching Catherine, who'd never held a microphone before, pick it up and just be an absolute natural. And when she started talking on the microphone, I just suddenly thought, oh my word, she is an incredible broadcaster. And it didn't take long for somebody else in the broadcasting world to hear her and think, we need to hire her. And she's spent, well, the last five years fronting the ATP and WTA and US Open rights holders in the UK, Amazon Prime Videos coverage, and ended up being the host when Emma Adekanu won the US Open for an audience of well over 10 million. You know, she's an incredible broadcaster and she just didn't know. <laughs> None of us knew until she started this podcast. I really want to get into that story specifically a bit later when we talk about the indirect benefits of podcasting. You know, you think about growing your audience, but there are so many opportunities that are presented to you when you spread your ideas through the audio format. One thing I just wanted to pause on was radio broadcasting a tennis match. And I've always wanted to ask someone who actually does it because whenever I listen to it and listen to you on the radio, I think this looks like the hardest job, sounds like the hardest job you could have. The balls are moving so quickly, they're going from left to right, they're different like types of shot you can hit. Like, what are some of the rules of doing that job, if there are any, of like, you need to do this or do that? I would just love to hear a minute or two on that particular job. It's an interesting question, because when I think back to when I first had a go at it, there was no school to go to. There was no nobody to tell you really what to do. I, I remember going along. I, I was given the chance to do it because I'd worked in tennis for four years as a communications person behind the scenes. And they were interested in me. I think they thought I'd got a decent voice and, and obviously knew about tennis, but I'd got great contact. So they let me have a chance to be in part of their team. But really, it was a question of sitting down, listening to some of my heroes who were doing it in the seat next to me or that I'd watched and listened to for many years and and trying to not copy them, but take the best bits of it and then try to develop my own style. Now, I believe that it is not the most difficult job in the world. I think it's the easiest. A, because for a living, I'm getting to watch tennis and talk about it. How am I pulling that off? I've never really quite grasped how I can be that lucky to have a job like that where people send me to these tournaments, tell me to watch a match, and then pay me for it. And now I've got a podcast in which I'm also allowed to do that, but in a slightly different way. Now, in terms of the actual skill, in inverted commas, of tennis commentary on the radio, it is very different to TV, which I didn't do until about 11 years into my broadcasting career. I didn't do any TV commentary. I actually found that more difficult to pick up. And the reason is, on the radio... There are no pictures for the vast majority of people. They're in their cars, they're driving along, they might be doing something else, and I'm there to help them out. I'm there to tell them what's going on and to bring them the feel of the match, the description of yes rallies and so forth. But I think in terms of the nuts and bolts of describing a tennis rally, I rarely describe every single shot personally. I think it's a little too much for the ears to keep up with. Occasionally you do it on a match point. You want to make sure you get every single note 
of a rally on championship point or so forth. I'm quite big into shorthand and colloquialisms and trying to make it accessible and not being too hung up on, certainly not on our radio station where it's a much more general audience. I'm not talking about grip changes and spin revolutions per second and all this sort of thing. I'm I'm very much on, well, what's going on is the way I come to it. And why should they care? I'm trying to explain to the listener, why should you care about this tennis match? Who are these two people? What are they doing this for? And what's going on? That's really what I'm trying to get across. I personally am a big believer in using the crowd as an audio tool. There was a moment in the Wimbledon final just gone that I had the privilege to commentate on between Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. And in the second set, after an 85-minute second set, they're in a tiebreak. And Alcaraz gets himself to set points and nobody beats Djokovic in tie breaks. And I remember saying that and then saying it's set point. And Alcaraz served out wide onto the backhand. And I didn't, it was so quick, the return for a clean winner, that I didn't have time to describe the shot. And I just said, he serves out wide, out wide, it comes back. And that's all I said is it comes back. And then you heard the crowd. And then you don't need me because you know what's happened. And that's, I don't know whether you could really teach or learn that unless you have the feel for it. And it obviously helps me greatly that I love tennis and I watch tennis all the time. And I just get a feel for what's going on. And when somebody's about to hit a winner, I can kind of feel it coming a lot of the time. And so you set things up so that the crowd can be your exclamation mark in radio, in TV, I feel as though the chances are I'm going to get in the way most of the time if I talk. So I don't do too much talking. People are there to watch the match. They can see it. They don't need me too much. And the worst thing I can do is get in the way. So I'm very much a less is more person on the TV. And I just want to try to be good company for the viewer and let them watch the match. Sounds like a pretty good strategy to me. Going back to the podcast, and you talked about Catherine already. We've talked on this show quite a bit about personalities and characters on podcasts. And it's important, particularly if you have more than one host, for each person to kind of have a defined role for your audience, your listener to tune in. And like, I know I'm going to get this from David. I know I'm going to get that from Catherine or Matt. How both has the team evolved in terms of like you and Catherine started, you brought Matt on board subsequently. And then how do you each think about what you bring to the podcast and what listeners get from you? It has evolved. You're right, Don, because... When we started, I was the only broadcaster of the two of us, in Catherine and I. So I took it upon myself to host it, to get us on air. I was going to fire her questions, and she was going to answer them. And then I'd pitch in with my opinions off the back of her. She didn't know how to host at that time at all. As we went along, and we realized that she had a, an ability to, to broadcast, and she started to do that for TV, we actually switched roles. She now hosts the majority of the shows, and she's a, just an absolutely natural presenter. But I mean, it, you also have to practice and pick it up, and that's what she did. We kind of also decided to use the podcast as a way to help her hone her hosting skills. And also, I think by me hosting, it was sometimes preventing me from really giving my opinions and the wealth of years in the sport that I got under my belt and be able to use those anecdotes in quite that way. So we realized probably it's better if she hosts wherever possible, 
and sometimes we still switch it if she's got a tv job and she's got too much on apply i say right i'll host it this two weeks you can just answer the questions that way you don't have to do all the prep and i think sometimes just mixing it up is we're lucky that i think the audience quite enjoys that mixture but she's the host and i'm known as the sort of upbeat nearly 50 year old dad who tells terrible dad jokes and is a bit cringe and doesn't know anything about popular culture she is the 30 something cool woman who knows everything that's going on in the world that i don't understand so she's constantly educating me and then in 2015 we were approached by a young lad called matt roberts who was a university student who also wanted to work in tennis and he asked do you need anything doing so we got him to do our social media for a while while he was still at university and did that. It always went well. And then about three years later, we invited him for the first time to come to the pub while we were recording one of the shows in 2018. And unbeknownst to him, I packed a third mic and plugged it in. And halfway through the show, she asked me a question and I just said, why don't we find out what Matt thinks? And by this time, Matt was known as student Matt on the air. People didn't know of him, but they'd never heard him before. So I gave student Matt the microphone and he answered the question, looking pretty shocked and pretty sheepish about it all. And and he had, frankly, no ambitions to be a broadcaster. He, he wanted to work in tennis. He, he saw himself, I think, as maybe a writer. He didn't see himself as somebody with the confidence and personality to be a broadcaster. But the moment he started talking, it was another one of those moments, like when Catherine started. I just thought, oh my God, he's great. He's really good. He's interesting. He's not missing a beat. He's not stumbling over a word. He has got perfectly formed thoughts that I have not thought of. He's got statistical knowledge to back it up. He's got facts that I wouldn't have considered at all. And after we recorded it and put it up, the reaction of the listeners was just incredible. There's, you've got to have him back on. He needs to be a permanent part of the show. That was what we were getting back from them. It was he, he'd got, I think, another year of university to go. And we were thinking, well, how do we make that happen? And so it's just evolved and built. And he became more part of the show, more part of responsibility for being the stats guy, somebody who, when I, myself and Catherine are throwing opinions around, he will then suddenly come in with the actual facts to prove or disprove what we might be saying. And he has a very considered way of delivering it. And People just love him. They prefer him to us way more. And nobody can remember what the podcast was like before Matt started being part of it. And Catherine and I occasionally, if he's ill or if he's unavailable, we'll do a show and we just sit there talking about how on earth did we do this for 300 shows before he turned up. Had you ever tried to incorporate anyone else into a reoccurring role on the show? Not reoccurring. I mean, we well, I suppose we had guests from time to time. Sure. And we still have, there are certain people that I think the listeners expect to hear every Grand Slam. Pam Shriver is one of them, who's a great doubles champion, many times over at Wimbledon, former doubles partner of Martina Navratilova. And, and during the pandemic, we asked her for an interview as we were trying to fill the fill the shows. And she did the interview, listened to it back, and then became one of our listeners. And now she's become a real friend of ours. We ended up telling a very harrowing story of hers. She chose us as an outlet to tell a very difficult story in her life. 
and it's just become a great friend. So she's now become a recurring guest at the Grand Slams. We've got a guy from the Telegraph, Simon Briggs, who's their tennis correspondent. He is now a, a regular. Mary Carrillo, the great American broadcaster who's been one of the best broadcasters in on sport in America for the last 30 years, introduced herself to Catherine during the French Open about six years ago. And we were worshippers of her as a broadcaster. We didn't know her. We'd never met her. Just introduced herself to Catherine and said, are you Catherine Whitaker from the, from the tennis podcast? And I think that that's when we realized, crikey, this is actually starting to get listened to by people we would never have thought. And now she's become a great friend of ours and started listening. And then she told Billie Jean King about the tennis podcast. And Billie Jean King is now a, a listener of ours. And that has just sort of kind of taken up a life of its own. Not a bad list of names right there. How do you decide between the serious reporting, like you referenced there, the serious stories versus the laid back conversations versus breaking news? Do you have an approach to that when you think about the content itself? Well, it is very much all of those things. And the style and the feel of the show is to be ourselves, to be relaxed, to be conversational. But the content is whatever's going on in the tennis world. And if it's uncomfortable, we're going to be talking about it. If it's funny, we're going to be talking about it. It just doesn't matter what it is. If we think it's worthy of conversation and our opinions and our research and investigations, we will talk about it. And really, that's become who we are as a show. And sometimes it is difficult. Sometimes you have some very uncomfortable subjects. and You have to criticize people you're going to see next week and things like that. But we are going to stay true to who we are no matter what. And so that's what it is. And it will, the tone of it will shift quite dramatically within a show sometimes where we have to go from messing around and talking about Catherine's dog, who's just gone to the loo inappropriately in the corner of her carpet, to talking about something that is really upsetting that's happened in the tennis world. And we've got to tell people about it if they don't already know and then ask each other what we think. I'm very jealous of your hit rate of finding high quality podcasters. You seem two from two, which is pretty good going. How much of that do you think is just having spent like with both Catherine and Matt, you spent a lot of time with them before podcasting with them? How much of that do you think is just the relationship between you guys and and how much of it is just innate with them? They have got great voices, they can talk eloquently, they know what they're talking about, and they are just interesting. Are there any things or markers that you would say for other people thinking about podcasting in terms of like, yeah, I check these boxes or no, I don't? Yeah, I think I have been very fortunate there because people like them don't come along every day. We do get approached by a lot of people who would love to work with us or do what we do. And if I can, I'll always try to give people feedback, but I can't create what Catherine is or what Matt is. I think I'm good at identifying when somebody's got it. And I think in both of their cases, they've got something that I haven't got as a broadcaster. And I think that that's what actually makes the show what it is, is that the three of us are very different. We get along famously. Catherine and I sometimes don't see eye to eye. And I think that people quite enjoy that when we don't. And Matt is somebody who has to sort of peacemake between us because he's just a very calm presence generally. But she and I have also been working together for 16 years. So we must be doing something right because we're still getting along today overall. You can certainly improve. You can 
hone whatever you've got. And look, there's no one way to broadcast. There are lots of different types of, of podcasts out there, but some people have just got it or they haven't. And these two, the moment they picked up a mic, I just wanted to hear what they've got to say. And that remains the case today. We'll ask you for our assessments after we uh, stop the recording offline and we can go from there. You're doing all right so far. <laughs> you mentioned before the relationship with some of the players and balancing that with having to be critical when it's necessary and having to say honest to the audience. It's very difficult to do that, I think. And I think there's been a lot of people maybe with not the traditional broadcasting background, maybe coming up through an untraditional media outlet. But as they get closer and closer to the players, they lose some of that criticalness in their dialogue. How do you approach that understanding it's human nature, where once you develop a relationship with someone, it's a little bit more difficult to talk about them in negative fashion? Yeah, I think it is human nature. I think you're right about that. I mean, I'm, I mentioned how we ended up becoming friends with Pam Shriver. I would probably have a hard job criticizing Pam Shriver now to some degree, not because of anything other than the human relationship between us. But I'd like to think that if she completely messed something up, I'd say, and, and I mean, in my case, there's a British player who's 21 in the world called Dan Evans, who I know very well because he's from my area of the country, he lives just down the road from me and got to know him pretty well. I like him, get on with him. We often stay in touch. But the guy failed a drugs test about three or four years ago. And I'm not going to pretend he didn't. He did. And he deserved criticism for that. It was recreational. It was, I think, stupid what he did. He admits that, that it was stupid and it wasn't performance enhancing. So I think that there's mitigation there. He served a suspension and he's come back and he's had a really good career. And I, I think that that's how I would say it. he was an idiot. He deserved the suspension and he's made a great comeback. Right. Move on. But I'm not going to gloss over the fact that that happened in his life because it did. And I don't think he would expect me to if I'm doing my job. But yeah, it does make things more difficult. What I would say, though, is that we approach our jobs. And while it is still a labor of love, it is a job journalistically. And that is very important to me. I don't think that many podcasts really necessarily think that they are journalists or that they are approaching stuff in that manner. It's often a side gig. To us, it's the thing. It's the main thing. This is what we do. And we, we've we got to a point where we're now taking the tennis podcast to all of the four Grand Slam tournaments on site, flying ourselves over to Melbourne, to New York, staying three weeks in our Airbnb so we can all be there, so we can be at the press conferences, so we can ask the questions of the players, not just have to rely on what somebody else has asked them. We want to be that journalistic source and help to create the material that everybody uses, quite honestly, not just getting it for ourselves. We want that to be part of our role. We're proud of that. And so I think you've got to try to have a little bit of distance, therefore, between yourselves and the people you're talking about in order to have that ability to criticize. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned earlier that last year or the year before you went full-time with the podcast and now you're flying around to all the slams, begs the question of monetization of the podcast itself and how you pay for those trips and just and it being your day job. At this point, what does the business model look like from a monetization standpoint? What kind of the different revenue streams and how have you built those up over time? 
Well, for many years, Catherine and I would go to the Grand Slam tournaments because I was broadcasting for the BBC and they were happy enough for me to do the tennis podcast on the side. Catherine was often broadcasting for Eurosport or for Amazon Prime Video and would be there and she would do the same. And we would just, frankly, tag the podcast onto the end of our days and I would edit it at three in the morning. And therefore, it didn't impinge on our work roles for the people who were paying for us to be there. And that's how we managed to get there. But it became clear to me that, A, after five years, and we spent five years earning nothing from this thing, in fact, losing money. After five years, it became clear that really we needed to try to find a way to make something out of it. And we were starting to build an audience that was becoming worthwhile to us. And if we were going to have a real longevity and be able to keep on producing the show and keep being on site, we couldn't rely on other people to be sending us there. That's what I was always in the back of my mind is, what if I lost my job at the BBC? What if they stopped sending us to tennis tournaments? What if Catherine lost her work? You know, Then it might become really difficult to keep this up. Our way of starting monetization, because I'd had zero success with the sponsorship route, as I've already said, was to start a, a Kickstarter. So effectively ask our audience to pitch in an amount of money and we set a target within it. And at that time, I think the first target we set was £10,000. If we hit that, we'll produce the tennis podcast all year long and daily at all the Grand Slams. We're talking about the regularity of it. Weekly, year-round, daily during all of the Grand Slams is what we'd said. And, you know, you're talking over 100 podcasts a year, therefore, if you're going to keep that up. So we started to think, you know what? We need to get something out of this and have it cover our costs. And that's what we went for. When was that? What year? That was 2017. And they hit that target. And then the next year, we set a slightly higher target. And this went on for four years, including the pandemic year where they hit a target. I think we set a target by then of 80,000. And they hit that target. And then the pandemic started. And we realized we can't produce daily editions of a tennis podcast with no tennis going on very easily. And so we actually offered all of our backers a refund if they wanted one. But we also decided we would set up a way that we could still produce a daily podcast during what would have been the Grand Slams by doing a nostalgic series called Tennis Relived which we still run today for what are now our subscribers as opposed to our voluntary backers. But effectively, after four years, I think we realized we can't keep setting higher and higher targets for people. They just don't understand why we would be asking for that, even though we were quite clear that, okay, if we hit this target, we will hire Matt full-time. If we hit this target, we will bring Matt with us to the Australian Open and pay for him to go. It was all on Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. He, he was a fantastic tool. But I think we started to realize that we needed to be giving those that are paying something more than everybody else is getting, not just, and they bless them, they were just trying to support the show at that stage. And there were some higher categories for people who wanted a shout out at the end of the show and others that wanted to introduce a show and 50 people who wanted their pet to be a mascot of the show. <laughs> and these things all still happen to this day. But yeah, 18 months ago, we decided to go full into a subscription system to have our usual layer of 100 plus shows free year round, the weekly show and the dailies at the Grand Sams. 
but we produce about another 25 shows now per year, including the Tennis Relived series, including Q&As with us, a review show in which we get various guests to send in voice notes that we litter throughout the show, just to give them something else for putting their hand in the pocket and backing us to keep us going. And that has been a real game changer for us, I would say, in that it no longer feels like people are just trying to do this voluntarily, that it's a transaction now. And it's just enabled us to feel like a business and to be a business. At the same time, we managed to finally get some sponsorship. I don't mind telling you that I listened a couple of times to your interview with Neil from No Laying Up and absolutely fantastic interview. I've followed their story for about the last five years as a loyal listener. I mean, I think they're absolutely brilliant at what they do, the golf podcast, No Laying Up, and all of the media content they produce. And I've just watched them really closely and I thought, well, which parts of what they're doing would work for us maybe? What could we borrow from them, copy blatantly from them and shift into the tennis world? Did the same with the cycling podcast. They, they were very good to me in sharing ideas. And that's basically how we built it. We've managed to get some sponsorship for the last year or so just to, yeah, you need several revenue streams really to make this thing work. But really the main one for us is subscription for bonus content and then some sponsorship on the top. It's incredible how those two came together just in terms of you start the subscription and then the advertising comes on the back of it as well. After so long to have those two things connected is excellent. And yes, big fans of No Laying Up and that episode. Kind of two-part question on the back of what you said. One, what sort of conversion rate do you see from your regular audience into the subscription product? And then the second one is, what do you think the hesitancy has been from sponsors? Because I'm sure you've got a very valuable audience. You know, tennis tends to be reasonably affluent. You see a lot of sponsors going to the big slams and the tournaments and they want to be seen in and amongst tennis. So what's kind of been the disconnect? And I, I, you know, Neil talked about this as well. Like golf is kind of a perfect audience for sponsors and tennis seems like it should fit a similar billing. So I'd be curious for kind of the reasons why that maybe hasn't worked so well. I think a lot of it is not really understanding the medium and the power of the medium. I think those of us within it, we realize just how intoxicating the medium of podcasts. I mean, I've always been convinced by audio generally. I just think it's such a magnetic, immersive medium. And people are so used to video and seeing what you can sponsor. And it's such an immature medium at this stage, even now after 10 years. And I suspect that people just are not sure because they don't really get it. And then, so all of the people that sponsored us are people that love podcasts. They don't need convincing because they love them anyway. A lot of, a couple of our clients have come to us and said, I love your show. Do you do sponsorship? Because I work with this and that's ended up becoming a, a way we've managed to sell sponsorship. So I think there's definitely that. I think lack of tangible evidence because nobody's sponsored us and we haven't been able to show the power of the medium, it's more difficult to convince others. But then once one or two started, it became more easy because we ran a couple of free prize draws for Friends of the Tennis podcast for people to enter using a um, prize that one of the sponsors offered. And you just saw the number of people that we were influencing to enter at that stage. And and I mean, I know that when I would listen to podcasts, I would suddenly be using MailChimp and Squarespace. They run my website because they were the podcast sponsors that I listened to. People want to feel like they're supporting 
the show by working with the sponsor. And I think that that's the great power of podcasts is I've worked in broadcasting for 20 years. If I've had three emails from listeners on BBC Radio telling me they like my commentary, I'm doing well in 20 years. We have dozens a week of people writing to us saying lovely things about the show and how much it's helped them during the pandemic and how much it means to them and how, you know, all these sort of things. And I feel like that about the podcasts that I listen to as well, no laying up included. So I just feel like there's been a bit of a disconnect because of the medium being audio and I'm not really quite understanding how powerful it can be. But there's a snowball effect. There's a snowball effect with listeners telling each other about the show and getting others to listen to it. And I think the same is true of potential sponsors. And I think because we developed this subscription system called Friends of the Tennis Podcast, we're able to say, look, four and a half thousand people not only enjoy our show, but they're prepared to pay for it. So that should tell you something, that we're reaching people. And to ask you about the conversion rate, it's probably around 10% in our case. And so we're not that big an audience. I'm not satisfied with our audience size yet. I would hope that it's got quite a lot of growth in it still to come. But our conversion rate, I think, is very high because I think we're really giving good value to those that do subscribe. I think we've worked that out quite well. And they really care. They really love the show. Those that do listen, love it. Yeah, we typically hear 3 to 5% conversion. So 10%, certainly on the higher side. I wanted to follow up on one of the things you mentioned about the feedback that you get from broadcasting versus the feedback that you get from podcasting. And you mentioned a little bit before, there's a scripted nature to radio broadcasting and podcasting is more conversational. Do you think there's anything else that drives that listener connection? You're one of the better people to answer this question because we're usually getting the pure podcaster biased opinion here. But I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on what drives that. I think the difference is in radio, having done it for 10 years before I started podcasting, I think there's a effectively we're talking at them. We're talking to them. We're the podcasters. You're the audience. We all know where we stand. I think with the podcast, they feel like they're in the room with us. And that's what we're trying to achieve. We want them to feel like they're in the pub with us. And I think they do. So I think the reason they write to us is because they think that they know us, whether they've met us or not. They think that they know who we are as people. And I don't think you necessarily feel that about a broadcaster. It's a slightly different tone. The truth is when they do meet us, when we're at Wimbledon, we're getting stopped all the time. I mean, it's quite comical really to watch Matt walking around and people saying, Matt, Matt. And he's like, what, me? And that's happening all the time. And they just want to say hello and tell us how much the podcast has meant to them. And they feel like they know us and all this sort of thing. And I think that that's why it happens. We call it Friends of the Tennis Podcast for a reason, our subscription system, because they kind of are friends. They've backed us and we've delivered for them. If you kind of draw the line from, you said five years, you didn't make a single penny from this and you were putting a ton of time into it to now where things are taking off. And I guess like the indirect opportunities as well of Catherine picking up broadcasting opportunities because of the podcast and it going back and improving or making you better on the broadcasting side as well. What in that journey with your big inflection points, if there were a few that you look back and say, that's when we really, I really felt like we had momentum on listener growth or was there a point at which you're like, I think this has got some legs and I just want to keep doing it. And I, I feel like it has the right momentum. 
I think when Matt joined and became an on-air member, I think that was a big moment because I think people, A, they got something different from Matt joining the two of us to what they'd had before and maybe checked a, a box we needed to add in order to make people feel more part of it to grow it that way. I mean, the Grand Slam tournaments generally, I think we see this spike of interest where people are looking for a tennis podcast to find out what's going on. And then if they discover us, we're good enough for them to stay with us. The big moments of increase, and you don't get many, you don't get much in the way of viral moments, In certainly in our experience. In Telling 11, us, yeah. <laughs> 11 years, it's really difficult. It's a slow growth and you've got to stay with it. And so many podcasts come and go because they don't get that immediate hit of, oh, this is working. Loads of people are listening. No, they're not. And you've just got to carry on regardless. Um, but we were lucky enough to be profiled in the New York Times just over a year ago. And we noticed then that that was an immediate increase and an increase of a certain type of person that I just don't think was listening to us before. We went to a tournament in California in March this year and did some sort of meeting with the listeners. And the majority of them said they discovered us via the New York Times. I mean, this is a terrible name drop, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> we got a note from Lin-Manuel Miranda during the US Open last year who just said, I'm at the US Open, I want to say hello. I read about you in the New York Times and now I love your show and I'm a listener. And I've subscribed and I'm a friend of the Tennis Podcast. That sort of thing is an incredible moment for us. So I think that that was a big spike. And then I think we've just enjoyed another one because we worked just now with Wimbledon to produce a video version, a live YouTube streamed version of the podcast for two weeks just now, which I think has introduced another audience to what we do. And that I sense is going to be our next moment of real increase in listenership. On top of the making media boosts that you will get. <laughs> Obviously, well, probably. Yeah. I hope. Why do you think I'm here? <laughs> yeah, on par with the Times. On par with the Times, I'm sure. Was there a, a unique backstory to that New York Times story? Was there an effort to get more in the press or were you approached? Was there anything specific that went into that happening? I mean, I, I have worked in PR for a long time. I have tried to use some of what I've learned and some of the contents I've got in order to find ways to pitch the tennis podcast and get coverage. And once in a while, that's worked. I have to take zero credit for this one, though, because this happened to be a writer for the New York Times, Matt Futterman, who worked in tennis, knew us a little bit. We didn't know him that well at the time, but he was a listener of our show. And he told me that he was driving with his wife in the car and had got the show on. And they were talking, he did features about not just matches, he did lifestyle pieces for the paper about the sport of tennis and every sport, in fact. And she just said, you should write about these guys. And he said, okay, yeah, let's do that. So he called me up and I, uh, I was trying to play it cool and I answered yes <laughs> in about 0.04 seconds. And yeah, we had a good chat over a nice glass of wine in Paris. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, next thing you know, he was profiling us in the New York Times. So no, it was amazing. Yeah, I'm glad I asked. That sounds like a very pleasant story and a pretty neat experience. It's amazing how many times the spouses or the kids that end up picking up on something and, and suggesting it and it becomes quite a big moment. In terms of what you represent in tennis and in the tennis podcast, obviously you were very early to this medium 
as time has gone on, more and more competition has come in to podcasts, just generally speaking. Do you think about that at all? Do you have a sense for the other options that are out there for listeners in terms of tennis podcasts? And has that changed how you approach anything? I'd be lying if I said I wasn't aware of what's out there. (laughs) But I would say we took great pride in calling ourselves the tennis podcast. I did sort of think when we called it that, we better be serious about this because otherwise we're lying. (laughs) There's nowhere to hide with that name. And we better do a good job and produce a show that really is good to that title. And I think we've done that. We've been regular. We've stood the test of time. We've kept evolving, growing, trying to figure out ways to be better. And I think we are, we're doing a good job in that regard. I suppose I am surprised that in the last decade that a big broadcasting company hasn't set up a tennis podcast that has really rivaled us in that way. I'm surprised that one of the big outlets, ESPN or whatever it might be, I mean, Tennis Channel do have a lot of podcasts, so they are out there. And there are a lot of independents. I think there's also a lot of independents that have started up and realized just how hard it is. I mean, it can be pretty soul-destroying, putting all that effort in and feeling as though you're not getting very far. I mean, gee, we've gone through that. We were not an overnight success in it by any means. A lot of people start and then just realize they kind of run into real life. And they're like, I cannot justify putting all this time in for nothing and You've got to really want to do that if you're going to do it. So I'm surprised that companies haven't come in and created them. I'm sure they will eventually. The the medium is growing. I think that there will be tennis podcasts with big brand titles on top of them. And there's definitely one or two that do it regularly now. But yeah, we've. I'm confident in what we are. And we got in early and we're not stopping. Yeah, it's a pretty big advantage when you have the drive to go for five years and just churning out content for no tangible return. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion. It goes to the heart of, I think, just what podcasting is about and our lived experience of it as well. And it's been such an interesting story to hear from you. I would love to finish, given the history you've been witness to and a part of in terms of commentating on tennis as a whole, for a closing story or two of kind of your one, some of your most vivid memories commentating and just being in and around tennis. Any that jumped to mind when you think over the last 20 years? Well, I'll have to do some more name dropping. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I suppose the career and evolution of Roger Federer would be at the top of my list, simply because I met him when he was 16 in 1998, and he just won Wimbledon Boys, and I was on the tennis tour as a communications manager who was in charge of the PR at the event that he played the week after when he made his professional debut in Switzerland in 1998. There was a lot of excitement around him in his country, and he lost 6-4, 6-4 in the first round to Lucas Arnold of Argentina. But I remember meeting him and setting up his first ever press conference and talking him through how it all worked and what it would be like. And he was just this young lad, just this teenager with a goofy grin who just was curious and amused by this world that he'd suddenly entered into and he was great company at the time really nice lad thought at the time i hope he becomes good because he's the sort of character that could become really popular and then following his progress for the next two or three years whilst i worked on the tour and worked at a lot of events with him and it not happening 
in all honesty, for several years as he was a teenager trying to work it out and try to learn how to be a pro. So to watch him win his first Wimbledon in 2003, five years later, was an incredible moment. To then commentate on, well, a lot of the 20 Grand Slams that he subsequently won, and then to attend his retirement press conference last September and ask a question of him in his final press conference, having been at his first, was, I think, a moment that made me realize, crikey, I'm getting old. And uh, I've been doing this a long time, and I would rather do this than anything else. And I felt like that 20 years ago. I feel like that today. And I hope I feel like that in however long I get to do it for, because it's a brilliant sport. Podcasts are amazing to work in, broadcasts. I, can't, I, I cannot believe my luck. I cannot. And I hope I never do. There's lovely symmetry in that story. Something about five years in this discussion, that seems to be important. So we'll keep on going. Thank you so much for sharing your story and insights with us today. Really loved it. Thank you. My pleasure. That's the only making media podcast that ends on a Roger Federer story. I'll still be happy. He's probably my favorite sportsman in the world. What did you make of that? I thought it was excellent. To start out, I think a name like the Tennis Podcast highlights the importance of SEO (laughs) when it comes to podcasting. So they definitely staked the ground with that and got an early start and made the most use of the title of their show. Do you actually want to apologize? I, I thought you, it was... This is a forum for you to... No. <laughs> you can finally say the words, I'm sorry. You seem to have forgotten those. <laughs> Pressing forward. I will admit defeat. That's, that, that is what it is. I honestly thought there was a lot of really interesting things that came away from it. One of the things I think is like fascinating that Catherine transitioned into a major broadcasting opportunity from doing the podcast. And I think that's something you could see happen more often in the future. And I would not be shocked at all. I think like the closest comparison that we have over here is Pat McAfee with ESPN, which was a monster deal. So that was one piece of it. I think his perspective on radio versus podcasting was pretty interesting to me. And just like what might be actually driving that intimacy and that relationship that you have with the audience. And just hearing some of his anecdotes in terms of how he approaches the job of, of radio was pretty cool. Yeah. The next time someone asks or says, like, I'm thinking of getting into podcasting, I'll just be like, can you go and listen to this episode with David, please? Because I think that that 50, 60 minutes encapsulates what podcasting is all about. Like, he just loves the medium of it. You know, he was even in audio before. He had what you might think on paper, like, you've got all these things and they're actually paying you for this. Why are you doing this other audio thing over there where you're not getting any money? It's taking you tons of time and probably stress and headaches, etc. But like, what you just said, it's a very different medium for all the reasons that he outlined. And if you're not prepared to go through those years in the wilderness where no one's listening, you're not making any money, then like you shouldn't start because that's what you're competing with. And you know, you asked at the end, or he kind of asked himself, why have big corporations in tennis or sports not gotten into tennis podcasts? Well, like the, the reality is that people there are paid to do their day job and they're more corporate. And so they'll give up at the first sign that this thing's not working. The business might give them three months or six months or maybe a year if they're really generous to say, like, grow us an audience over there. And if it doesn't happen, then it gets the cull. This is 11 years in the making. And one of his inflection points, the first one came in 2017 or whenever it was. And the next one came in 2022. Like, it's a slow burn. And if you don't love it, then don't start it. Yeah. And can you imagine actually doing this 11 years ago before all the tools were (laughs) as easy as they are today? 
that's like another thing that I think about sometimes. It's like, I cannot imagine that. He kept saying, I love podcasts and I love listening to all these shows. I was like, there can't have been more than five podcasts in the world at that point in time. You had to download them and (laughs) sync them to your MP3 device or you were listening on the web. I mean, it speaks to it. It's a whole different level of involvement. There's a funny, funny tangent there because we've got a feature on joinclosses.com, which is our website if you haven't been. But on there, you can download the audio files for all our episodes. And once I was talking to Engineer Joe about like, why do we have this thing? Surely no one's using it. Give me the stats. Let's get rid of it because it's cluttering up or should be a frictionless page. And we took it off. Within, no kidding, 12 hours, I had three different emails from different corners of the world giving me reasons why they downloaded an audio file. One was a swimmer and needed to download it onto his player that he could use like underwater. One was in China where he couldn't get Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And then another one I can't remember. But I was just stunned by the power of this stuff that people will go to these great lengths. And I guess that's what it was like in the the mid-noughties. And how David was listening to all this stuff. Yeah, it's a labor of love, as he mentioned. And they've been pushing strong. I also love that that guy, Matt, we need to find our version of Matt that's better than (laughs) this version of Matt that's speaking right now. Guy leads to more audience enthusiasm. They pawn him out as the guy that they're raising money for. That's like just incredible. We definitely need our version of that. Yeah, we need a stats guy that can mediate some of our spats and tell us when SEO really is a thing or not. We'll keep looking. Yeah, I'm jealous that they've had such a good hit rate on finding good people. I think most of that if I'm from my seat and my vantage point, it's just the familiarity of being around people for a long time and just being able to riff off them and sometimes being able to argue in a good spirited way, which doesn't mean that you fall out forever, but you're able to give that kind of tension to the listener base. I think like that's probably most of it. Most people can speak. Sometimes the voices aren't very nice to listen to, but I think it's really just the longevity of your relationship with someone. Yeah. And being comfortable on both sides. Yeah. I agree with that. What do you think our version of Catherine going to Amazon Prime would be? Matt appearing on Bloomberg in the mornings. No, I don't I don't know. What would it be? I don't want to go on any of those daily talk shows about stocks. That's for sure. Yeah, it's tough to say exactly. We'll put that down as a reason for why it ha- hasn't happened. It's got, it's got nothing to do with us. It's, there's no open positions. Yeah. I mean, it would have to be around the stock market, I assume. Can't think of anything else that's like a live event that would require that type of or be that natural transition but something to think about if i just keep hosting sports breakdowns do you think it'll happen for me yeah that's my exit route (laughs) it is interesting it does seem like such a different skill set to my eyes you know and he was explaining about radio being very different in terms of or like not difficult that's what he was saying in terms of calling games you mean yeah 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 i was going to interject when he was talking about that it feels like energy is such a big piece of that Like if you know when someone is describing a sports match over the radio, just them inflecting their voice and giving energy makes you notice that it's an important thing. Most of the time, I'm not even listening to what they're saying, but I can tell that it's important. And then as he said, when the crowd gets involved, that's when it gives added panache to whatever you're saying and whatever's going on on the pitch. Yeah, you got to sell the moment a little bit. Some are very good at doing that. Others are not. There's some really great podcasts with Jim Nance where he talks about his approach to this. And even with the masters, how he writes out notes before the last day and things that he might say on that final shot, he has his lines. And yeah, it's, I, I, find, I find that whole approach to be really interesting. You'll have to send that to me. That's fascinating. Yeah, I definitely will. It's kind of a cool backstory into this. I guess explains as well a lot of what we just heard from David. We got connected after 
doing that conversation with Neil about no laying up and I saw that he on Twitter really liked it and that I kind of I knew who he was and messaged him and we talked back and forth a bit about that specific episode and he was like yeah I've listened to it four times I'm trying to extract all the pieces I can out of it because I think what they've done is so fascinating and obviously there's a huge crossover with what we're trying to do like he's just a student of this medium which is always fun for us to talk to yeah look at us arming the rebels over here <laughs> yeah let's uh add value into the world it's not about how many followers you got it's about who's in your following hey sounds like it's working out pretty well for them and there were a lot of good lessons from that so good to see it's uh making its way to the system and i honestly think people will take a lot from this one too so i hope so yeah next year it'll be ibm's the tennis podcast and we can trace that back to the making media appearance that's right uh, i also thought the kickstarter was a really smart idea that was the other thing that i had written down Serious inflation on that Kickstarter, <laughs> starting off at 10, getting up to 80. <laughs> I, I was going to bring that up. But uh, again, Matt gave them an excuse. Just need our Matt. You do need a full guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have seen what happened if they didn't raise the money, whether Matt would have just fucked up on left. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's all I got as well. The US Open these starts today, or it's about to start. They're starting their live broadcast. So um, you can jump straight from here into the tennis podcast and enjoy the next couple of weeks with them covering the US Open. This is good. You're talking into the future. I like what you're doing here. <laughs> the thing is, you're assuming that people are listening on Thursday. It's actually Friday. This is a very good point. Yeah. All right. I tried. That's what I'll say. Go and listen to the pro podcast. You'll find lots of stuff there. There's over a thousand episodes, I'm told. So you go and find that. Amen. Thank you. All right. We will talk to everyone. Enjoy the tournament. Enjoy the tennis podcast. Enjoy making media. Spread the good word. See you soon.